0: All right, brothers and sisters, let's take out our Bibles, if you have them, and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 3. 1 Corinthians, chapter 3. We have been going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through this book of 1 Corinthians, and this morning we come to chapter 3, verse 16, here in just a moment. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Now, I don't know if anybody else in here is like this, but I have always been absolutely fascinated by symphony music. I could go sit and watch a symphony orchestra play, even not knowing anything about what they're going to play and just be fascinated the whole time. And I think this comes from as I grew up and I was watching movies, I would always notice the musical scores behind the movies themselves. I would always notice the, the symphony music in the background that the composer used to score the movies. And you've heard a lot of these, some of these are very famous. You might know the name John Williams who did the music to Star Wars and uh, Indiana Jones and Jurassic Park and things like that. He's probably the most famous one. But in those movies, the composers who make the music behind the movies, they'll use what they call themes. Themes that come up again and again as auditory cues for us as we're watching the movie. And so as we see visually, they also want to cue us in with our ears, with what we hear, to what we're seeing on the screen. And so, for example, most often this is a theme for a character in a movie. And every time you see that character, his, his theme will play in the background. For example, you all know whose theme this is. Dun dun dun, 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 right? That's the theme for Darth Vader. And every time he shows up in the Star Wars movies, his theme plays. But you can also have themes for other things, not just people. You can have themes for a, a certain thing in the movie. For instance, my favorite movie is The Lord of the Rings. There's a theme for the, the ring itself, right? Da, 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 da. You know that? You seen The Lord of the Rings? There can be a, a theme for a group of people. There can be a theme for a place. All kinds of themes that composers use in movies, and they use them over and over again. But this is not just in movies. You hear this in famous symphonies from classical composers like Bach and Mozart. I'd say every single one of us can recognize the opening theme of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. dun, 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 dun right? And what Beethoven does is he takes that theme, he introduces it right away, and then throughout that movement, He'll play variations on that theme. You'll hear that same theme and you'll recognize it, but it'll sound a little different each time. Perhaps it'll be faster or quieter or in a different key, right? Composers do this all the time. Themes that flow throughout an entire work. And the same is true for the Bible. In Scripture, we find themes that flow throughout the entire story. You see, this this Bible that we have, this is one story. These are not 66 unrelated books mashed up together. It's one story from one ultimate author. And one of the ways that you see that that is the case is by tracing a theme throughout the story of Scripture from beginning to end. Sometimes this is called biblical theology, and I'm not just referring there to theology that is faithful to the Bible, But biblical theology is the practice of tracing themes throughout the story of Scripture. Perhaps it's the theme of sacrifice. Think about your Bibles. You can see how that that theme is carried from beginning to end. Or the theme of the fact that we're saved, not by works, but by grace through faith. Or the theme of God making covenants with His people. Well, today we're going to be looking at a theme that we can find throughout Scripture from beginning to end, and it's the theme of Temple, The temple in the Bible is the place where God's holy presence dwells among sinful human beings. I want you to remember that as we go through this theme and throughout this sermon. The temple in scripture is the place on earth where God's holy presence dwells among sinful people. So let's come to our text today, Paul's words to us from 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 16. Paul writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple." Now this morning, we're going to look at some of the lessons that we need to take away from those two verses, but before we do, we're going to do some biblical theology together. We're going to trace the theme of temple throughout the story of the Bible from beginning to end. And I want you to go on this this journey with me mentally, because in scripture, it starts all the way back in the book of Exodus. Now don't worry about turning to all of these references because you won't have time. Just stay in 1 Corinthians. But let's think all the way back to the book of Exodus. The people of Israel are delivered from the hand of Pharaoh as slaves. God delivers them with the ten plagues, right? You remember the ten plagues? You remember the, the miracle God did at the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea and how they came through it, and then he closed it back over on Pharaoh and his armies. But then once they're through, God leads them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God gives his people the law, the Ten Commandments, And in Exodus chapters 25 and 26, he gives them detailed detailed commandments and instructions on how to build a tabernacle. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was a tent that the people of Israel camped around. And as they wandered throughout the wilderness, they were to set up this tent in the middle. More important than all the other tents, this tabernacle would be the place where God would dwell amongst his people. God's presence would dwell in this tabernacle if they built it to the Lord's exact specifications. If only certain people were to go in and minister there, the Lord would dwell among his people. The tabernacle was like the temple before the temple. It's like a a mobile temple that they could pack up and move and set it down whenever they, they camped in a different place as they were wandering through the wilderness. It's the first instance of what we would call a temple in the Bible. But then we come to 1 Kings chapter 6 through 8, where King Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem. You remember this? David had it in his heart. King David had it in his heart to build a temple for the Lord. David said, I'm living in a palace and the ark of the covenant of God lives in a tent. It dwells in a tent. We've got to give something better to God. And God comes to David and God says, David, it's good that you had it in your heart to do this, but you will not be the one to do it. Your son Solomon will build me a temple. And so in 1 Kings 6-8, through we see exactly that. King Solomon, having taken over the throne from his father David, builds the temple. It's the most magnificent and ornate piece of architecture the world had ever seen up to that point. It was so detailed and so big and so glorious. And after they did it, to the Lord's exact specifications, God's presence dwelled in the temple. The temple in Jerusalem, no longer a mobile place, but a located place that would always be there in Jerusalem. God's presence dwelling among the people, signifying that those were His people who had His blessing. But... In chapter 25 of 2 Kings, God allows that temple to be destroyed because of the continual and unrepentant sin of his people. The nation of Babylon, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, comes in and sacks Judah, destroys the temple, and they carry off many of the Israelites to Babylonian captivity. And the Israelites lived there in exile for over 70 years. While they were there, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel prophesies in the book of Ezekiel that one day the temple will be rebuilt and God's glorious presence will return to it. We find this in Ezekiel chapters 40 through around 48. One day, one day this temple will be rebuilt and God's presence will return. And ever since that prophecy, the Israelites look forward to that day. They can't wait for the day. When is it going to happen when God will restore our fortunes? when God will return to dwell among us, and we will once again have God's presence dwelling in a temple in our midst. Later, toward the end of the Old Testament, chronologically, if you remember Nehemiah, Nehemiah leads a group of people to rebuild the temple in Ezra chapters 3 through 6. But interestingly enough, God's presence does not return to that temple. And as it is built... Some of the older men see it. Who remember the former temple in all its glory, they see this new temple and they weep because the former glory is just not there. God's presence does not return to that temple. More on Ezekiel's prophecy here in just a moment. But when we get to the New Testament, it starts to become glorious and beautiful, this theme of temple. Because watch this. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we read this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When John wrote that, he was talking about Jesus. He said the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the Greek, in the original language, the word that John uses for dwelt is tabernacled. He invents a verb from a noun. This this verb had never been used. He invents a verb from the noun tabernacle and he said, Jesus came to earth and tabernacled among us. What's that mean? It means when Jesus came, he was the temple. He was the place where God's presence dwelled on the earth among sinful human beings. He was the bridge between sinful people and a holy God. It was Jesus. And we know this further because in John chapter 2, just a chapter later, do you remember the scene where Jesus drives out the money changers from the temple with a whip because they're desecrating it by selling and being greedy? He flips over the tables with money on top. He drives out the animals with a whip. And what does he say? When they come back to him and they say, Who are you? Who gives you the right to do something like this? Jesus says, Destroy this what? Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they look at him confused, and they say, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up again in three days? But they didn't understand he was talking about his body. And sure enough, Jesus' body, the temple of Jesus' body, was destroyed by crucifixion, and three days later was raised. Which brings us to 1 Corinthians where Paul says, you are God's temple. No longer is the temple a tent. No longer is the temple a building in Jerusalem. No longer is the temple Jesus Christ on the earth because He's in heaven now. Now you are God's temple. You, church, are God's temple on the earth. The church is the place where God's presence dwells among sinful men. The church of Jesus Christ is the bridge now between sinful humanity and a holy God. You are God's temple. You see that in verse 16? You still have your Bibles open? Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple? Now, I don't know if your Bible has this, but my Bible has a footnote there, and it's an important one. Because the you there, do you not know that you are God's temple? The you there is not individual, it's not singular, it's plural. Do you know that y'all are God's temple? That God's Spirit dwells in, in y'all. It doesn't come through in English because you and you, you can use that plural or singular. But it's it's y'all. That's what it is. It's you all are God's temple. It's not singular. Now you might have heard, you might have heard somebody say something to the effect of our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Have you ever heard, heard somebody say that? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's true. And that's something that Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, okay? Lord willing, we will get there, right? Unless Jesus comes back first, and that'd be great. But if we get there, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul will talk about our bodies, our individual bodies being temples of the Holy Spirit. But he's not there yet. That's not what he's talking about here. Here, it's a corporate you. You all are God's temple. The church is God's temple, God's Spirit dwells among us as we gather. So think about this for for a second. Right now, right here, God's Spirit is dwelling among us. Right here, right now. Do you feel the the weight of that? Do you feel the, the sense of awe and fear of the Lord that we should have? As we do what we are doing right now, the Holy Spirit is with us here right now. Does that change the way you think about what we're here doing? He is with us here right now in a way that He will not be with us when we disperse here in just a little while. When we gather, He is among us. God's Spirit is among us. Our church, the Columbia Christian Church among other churches in the world, our church is putting the Lord on display for a watching world. That's part of what the temple did in the Old Testament. The temple was a display to a watching world of who God is, a display of his majesty and his glory and his power, right? And his purity. Our church now in the new covenant, our church is a display to a watching world of God himself. And so the question is, are we giving them an accurate picture of who God is? What about it, church? Are we giving the world an accurate picture of who God is? This passage does not just apply to us as individuals. It applies to the body of Christ corporately, all of us together. Are we giving the world an accurate picture of who God is? Now, notice verse 17. Verse 17 is a stern warning, and we need to feel it as such. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, remember, he's not talking about your bodies here. This does not mean that God will destroy anyone who destroys his own body. What he's talking about here is that God will destroy anyone who destroys his church. God will destroy anyone who destroys his church. God takes his church supremely serious. Remember, Paul here in Corinthians is writing to the church at Corinth about divisions in the church. So think about verse 17 in light of divisions in the church. It's a strong warning for those who would cause division in the church. For those who would seek to control a church. For those who would seek to run people off from a church. For those who would seek to split a church. God says, whoever destroys my church, I will destroy that person. It's a a forecasting to judgment day. God takes his church supremely serious. The church is putting God on display to a watching world. What does a church split say to a watching world about God? The church is the bride of Christ, Paul says in the New Testament. The bride of Christ. So think about this. If my son grows up and gets married, if the Lord blesses him with a wife, as his dad, I'm not only going to be defending my son against the world, I'm going to be defending his wife too. My dad's the same way. My dad not only defends me, he will defend my wife because she is my bride, the bride of his son. How much more will God, the ultimate father, defend the bride of his only son, defend the church? And so let's heed that warning in verse 17 and not forget it. But I told you I'd I'd return to this after a while. What about Ezekiel's prophecy? Remember, Ezekiel prophesied when the people were carted off to Babylon and the temple was destroyed, Ezekiel prophesied that God's Spirit would one day return to a rebuilt temple. But the temple was rebuilt and His Spirit did not return. His presence did not return. What are we to make of that? In Ezekiel 43, verse 9, God says, I will dwell in their midst forever. I will dwell in their midst forever. In Ezekiel 47, again, don't turn here, but listen to this imagery. Ezekiel sees a vision of that day when the temple will be rebuilt and God's presence would return. And in that vision, Ezekiel sees a river, a river that flows out from the temple and gives life to all things. And on the banks of that river, there are trees that have leaves that give healing. You heard any of this before? Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. It's the second to last chapter in your whole Bible, so it should be a little bit easier to find than some of the others. Revelation chapter 21. As Ezekiel gave that prophecy that God would be with them forever that there's a river flowing out from this new temple that gives life to all things, that there are trees on the banks of that river, and their leaves give healing. Listen to Revelation and John's vision of the new heavens and new earth. This is what eternity is going to be like, folks. Verse one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. God spoke through Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 43, I will dwell in their midst forever. Now John hears a voice coming out from the throne that God will be with us forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Look down at verse 22. Revelation 21, verse 22. Watch this. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Do you see? The temple that would one day be rebuilt and God's presence would dwell in it amongst his people forever, that Ezekiel was prophesying, it's, it's eternity, it's heaven. It's the new heavens and the new earth. And there is no temple, there is no building in that city. We don't need one. Why? Because the temple is the place... That bridges the gap between sinful humanity and a holy and righteous God. But in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more sin. And so there will be no need for a temple. God is the temple. Christ is the temple. Now look at Revelation 22, verse 1. 22, just the chapter under. Verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river... Of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Ezekiel saw a river flowing out from the temple, but in the new heavens and the new earth, God is the temple, so the river flows out from his throne. Verse 2, chapter 22, verse 2. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, Yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Ezekiel saw trees on the banks of that river coming out from the, the temple. And the leaves of those trees were for the healing of people. Ezekiel 47, and now in the new heavens and the new earth, what tree is there? The tree of life. You remember the tree of life? Do you remember it? In the Garden of Eden, there were two prominent trees. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. But the other was the tree of life. When God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, do you remember? He put an angel with a flaming sword going back and forth at the edge of the garden. Why? He specifically says to guard the way back to the tree of life. No longer could they eat from that tree and live forever. But in the new heavens and the new earth, we see it yet again. The tree of life free access for all. The healing of the nations is in its leaves and we will live forever with God as our temple. God himself, the river of life flowing out of his throne. Do you see how clearly John is making it that Ezekiel's prophecy was not for some time here on earth. It's for the new heavens and the new earth. We are not waiting for a temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem today. We are not waiting for God's presence to fill a temple in Jerusalem today. We are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth where God will be our temple, where the tree of life will be there. All of those elements are there in Ezekiel's prophecy and in John's vision of Revelation. God is making it clear for us. Are you looking forward to that day? Do you have it in your heart? that you know where you will spend eternity? Will you be there? When you face the judgment seat of Christ, will He say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the glory of your Master, enter into this? Are you sure that He's gonna say that about you? Do you have confidence that on that last day when you hear Him pronounce your eternal fate, do you have confidence what He will say? Because once he pronounces it, there will be no second chance. That will be it. Where will you spend eternity? The temple is God's presence dwelling amongst sinful human beings. Right now, you are that temple. If you are a Christian, if you are part of God's church, the body of Christ, you are that temple together. But one day there will be no more need for a temple because there will be no more sin and there will be unhindered fellowship between sinful us and God and Christ. Here in just a moment, Dwayne's going to play on the piano and we're going to give a few moments for everybody to respond to God silently on your own, individually. What has God laid on your heart just now? What has God caused you to see in your heart, with the eyes of your heart? What is God convicting you about right now? We're going to give you a chance to respond to him in prayer privately. And then after we have those moments of prayer and private reflection, we're going to have a time where we're going to give the opportunity for anyone who wishes to, to respond publicly. But before we do that public response time, we're going to have this time of private response. Dwayne.